Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury, and our text this week is Psalm 80, Psalm 80, set aside as one of the uh, psalm options for the fourth Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday before Christmas tide itself. And our guest this week is Elaine James. Uh, Dr. Elaine James is a professor of Bible with a spe- as a specialist in the Old Testament, especially in Hebrew poetry, uh, teaching at Princeton Theological Seminary. This is her first time to be on the show. She's a published author, and you can find her stuff on Amazon or all uh, other kinds of places where you might look. And she's published lots of articles as well. She's a great scholar and great teacher um, and an old friend of mine. We overlapped in school a little bit. And so when she came back to uh, to Princeton, where we had overlapped years before, she came back to teach at Princeton about two years ago. And so uh, when we were starting the Psalms series this year, she came right to the top of mind as someone I'd love to have on as a great uh, expositor and uh, teacher of Hebrew poetry. So yeah, we're going to look at Psalm 80 together today. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice. Pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Elaine. So would you be willing to read uh, Psalm 80 for us? Sure. Yeah, this is the NRSV. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors, our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted. They've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. But let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that... As we 
read and hear and pray this psalm, that you would hear and receive our word. What's the opening line? (laughs) Hearken, listen, hear us, O shepherd of Israel. So we dare to ask that you would hear us, that we would learn how to ask for your restoring work, your turning work, your saving work, that we would remember the way that your restoring work was anticipated, that we would remember how it has been fulfilled, and that we'd be taught afresh how to wait and expect and beg for it again. Father, I ask that this crying out to you and this hearing by you would be at work in us as we converse right now and in all those who listen in so that we may be faithful bearers of your word in this time. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so uh, what do you notice here? What uh, stands out to you? What do you observe in this text, just to get us started? Yeah, well, the first thing that I notice is this refrain that you get several times, right? Which you get three times, verses 4, 8, and 20. Is our versification the same? Oh, sorry, no, in the English it's 3, 7, and 19, right? Yeah, (laughs) I'm cheating too. I've got my... And I actually, I have uh, Robert Alter's translation out. Oh, you do? Okay, which, good. And he follows the, the Hebrew versification, but you're yeah, right. We sure, should, we should sure. mention that it all versification this year on the Psalms, uh, yeah, you can on just, all Psalms episodes might, might be off by up to one verse. Might be off. <laughs> you, you can find your way easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, yeah. The which refrains. Is, exactly. Yeah. Which is interesting just because Hebrew poetry actually doesn't use a lot of refrains. So it's sort of an interesting fact that you get one here and it's almost identical in each case, but it actually builds each time, right? The first time you just have God, the second time it's Elohim Tzvaot, right? God of hosts. And then the right. third time you get the name of God, Adonai Elohim Tzvaot, right? So there's sort of like building impulse somehow in the mode of address, right? It's imploring perhaps, I don't know how you want to think about that. Maybe it's imploring with like greater urgency or specificity, calling on God's name more emphatically there at the end, but otherwise fairly similar, right? Yeah. So you don't get the full refrain in 15, mm. but I thought I'd just point that there's like kind of a partial. Yeah, right. You right. Get, it says God of armies. So you got, you get mm-hmm. Elohim Sabaoth again, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. Pray, come back. So it's a slightly different, I, I think the verb's a little different there, but. Yeah, you get the different verb, but you do, you're right. You get the title again in verse 15. But that's, right? that was just a side note. Because when I first looked at it, I thought that was the third one. Because of course, mm-hmm. then they'd be more. It's so tempting to want to, and this is surely just like later developments in Western music. Like it's so tempting to want to like project mm-hmm. the refrain at like even intervals, you know, yeah, like you right. get it, you get it and you almost want it to like stick it in a couple more times, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's absolutely like the impulse of, of hymnody sort of in its trajectory. Is to yeah. Give so a- I know Psalm 46, Psalm 46 has a, refrain of sorts mm-hmm. but you said that and you're it's so obvious now that you've said it that that hebrew poetry doesn't use refrains a lot 
Although I imagine there may have been refrain. I mean, there, this is evidence that they're capable of having refrain, right? Yeah. So it makes you wonder if there would have been in the use of these psalms in the ancient world or at some point in the tradition that refrains could have been added without being added to the text, right? In the moment, one could very yeah, easily take a phrase and repeat it. I don't know what you think about that, but. No, absolutely. I mean, what we know about actual mu- musical performances is so limited. I, I know very little actually about the development of psalmody, but of course, like traditions of singing the Psalms and then developing hymns based on the Psalms certainly use those kinds of techniques later. So, so presumably such things were possible in performance, but you know, we don't see them a lot as poetic technique per se, not very often. So it's, it's interesting to me that we get it and we get it with this, you know, such a striking visual image to let your face shine. I know there's definitely a lot of translation variety in the in the verb. So we already we already went through the Elohim mm-hmm. um, Elohim Sabaot, and then sorry, I have to turn the page. Adonai Elohim Sabaot. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so you get the the building of the divine name, kind of <laughs> building yeah. up to it. Okay, yeah. so and then each time it's it's this same verb. And how did NRSV do it? Oh, let's see. We have let your face shine. No, before that, the thing right after or right before the name. Of course, the name is first in in Hebrew, right? Oh, uh, Hashivenu, restore us. Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So restore us is what you had because I've seen like. Yeah. Restore or, you know, the verb is pretty. It's just turn, right? Yeah, it's a broad it's usage, so it could be translated any number of ways. Return, return us, or something like that. Restore as V has. Is it possible for it to be a like turn to us, or does that not work in the grammar? I don't know Hebrew very well, so um, I think it's plausible. I only ask because it, that would parallel the next line that the shining your face on us would have the implication of mm-hmm. don't turn your back, but turn toward us, as it were. But yeah. I feel like there's a translation that does that somewhere, and I'm trying to <laughs> remember, you know. Yeah, I'm interested in that. Off the top of my head, I don't know, but I think it's definitely worth exploring. I'm curious now what other translations do with it. Did you say you have Alter handy? I do. He goes with re- bring us back. Bring us instead back. Instead of restore. But Yeah, um, I would think we would ex- expect a, maybe a preposition in there if we were. I gonna- would think so. That's why I thought I'd ask. I don't even know where I was getting that from. It might've just been faint memory. You know how you, especially with the Psalms, you get them in your head. Oh yeah. (laughs) And and so one fluke translation one time, you know, Mm -hmm. but then light up your face so that we may be saved or rescued. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, is that identical every time then? Such a cool image. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, same verb each time in the three iterations. So talk to me about that image. What's so what's so cool about it? I mean, I, I hear it, but there might be things you're hearing in it that I'm missing with your knowledge of Hebrew poetry. Well, what's in the back of my mind is this kind of like solar dimension. We get these glimpses now and again of kind of solar dimensions of uh, Yahweh's presence in the Old Testament. I'm, I'm thinking of like Psalm 
I think we get it in Psalm 84. We get it certainly in Psalm 104, right? These places where the deity is associated with the sun that shines, you know, and that may or may not have connections to some kind of, I mean, some scholars have speculated a little bit about this. Was there kind of a solar cult practice associated with the Jerusalem temple, which we know is oriented toward the east? And it strikes me that that's kind of the background or maybe the suggestion of the image that you have here. Although, you know, it's not, it's not explicit, but I think you get it in the Psalm 2, kind of in other places, right? If you think about verse 2, or I suppose verse 1 in the English, in English translation, you who are enthroned or seated on the cherubim, and then you get this other Hebrew verb for shining, shine forth. So, for me, I can't help but connect that up then to this funny little, almost like inset story about the um, the vine in verses 9 through 14 or 10 through 15 or something like that, where because it's this agricultural, viticultural image, there's some kind of relationship to the sun that's implied. But then we also get the enemies that are burned, right? So I have this feeling, I don't think it is... I'm not at all suggesting that there's like a really clear, straightforward, like belief about a solar deity here. But what I am suggesting is that the imagery sort of like plays on the symbolic dimensions of the burning power of the sun, right? In a way that's pretty profound. Like, what does it mean for the deity who rides on the cherubim, right? Is enthroned on high to shine forth. It's like searing and also like that's where the healing potential of the deity is. And that's also where this like powerful searing retributive justice of the deity. It also is right. These two things kind of go together and the sun sort of captivates that like outrageous power, you know? Yeah. And that double sense of the sun and of God in that regard mm-hmm. in the horticultural setting, you mm-hmm. know, is, I mean, the sun is both the absolutely necessary thing for photosynthesis and for your plants to grow. And yet it's also the thing that kills your plants in the summer, right? So exactly. And that would be especially felt in a little closer to the desert that Israel is. So the sun is both this, the thing that, that gives that life to a vine, Mm -hmm. but also threatens it. So it's the source comes from both places because it dries it up, burns it up. Wow. That's so good. Okay. So if the, if the temple the backside of the temple, as it were, like where the where mm-hmm. the Holy of Holies would be. That's facing <laughs> east, correct? So if you're like looking at the temple, or is it that the door faces east? I'm trying to remember all of a sudden. <laughs> it's not that the entrance is like facing east, like you're if you're looking into the temple, your head you're facing east, correct? Yes. Okay. I think so. Although now that you say that I know I'm suddenly second guessing myself, sorry. <laughs> Like doing the exact same thing. I'm pretty certain that's the way it is. I am absolutely. I'm I'm with you. I feel like there should be a, a fast way for me to check this. So I'm just isn't, that, isn't that funny? Hang on. Okay. No, go ahead though. What was your question? Okay. Well, if that's so, then he's enthroned on the cherubim, but that has the double meaning both of him kind of up in the heavenlies or whatever. Mm. But also the two cherubs on the top of the ark, yeah. right? Yes, and absolutely. so is as if the light is shining kind of out from inside the temple Mm. towards us. Yeah. No, that's right. So you have this like simultaneously, the deity is in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Right. But then at the same time, this like enthronement on the cherubim, right. Is it, it means it's like localized in this sacred space, but also the religious imagination 
imagines that it's not limited to, so you remember like for Isaiah, right? All we can see is like the very hem of the robe. So God is like also profoundly exceeding the spatial dimensions of the, um, of the spatialization. It's interesting here though. So, um, and I actually don't know fully the answer to this, but it seems to me like a Northern Psalm, right? So we have leading Joseph like a flock, right? That's um, a common way of talking about the North. And we have Ephraim and Manasseh, definitely right. Northern. Benjamin is, you know, sort of Northern, sort of sometimes associated More with More ambiguous, North. yeah. Right. And... Although did the, the ambiguity with Benjamin, sorry, at a quick aside, is the ambiguity from like Benjamin's point of view, did both sides want to claim Benjamin or vice versa? They didn't like them and want to catch what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, I do see what you're saying um I'm like would the northerners be like yeah benjamin's ours or would they be like <laughs> well i think i think that it depends on the time period right because got it okay kind of like shift around a bit perfect that makes sense okay but ephraim manasseh no question these are northern yeah, tribes. Yeah, yeah definitely northern and so you, you sort of like have the sense because it has this like collective communal trauma that is it's bearing witness to right you think about like the fall of the northern kingdom to assyria like 8th century bce um, oh, okay. Yeah. And so you have this, but this context here. And so, which would make like the association with, for example, the Jerusalem temple a little bit murkier. Um, but at the same time, you know, we do have the collections that we do have are collected in Judah. So that's perhaps not surprising, but um, yeah. So I, that's all to say, like I, there seem to be like these specific historical events in mind. And yet at the same time, it's one of, it's like many Psalms, right? Sort of reticent to name them in an explicit way, which is one of the things that make the Psalms so persuasive for later readers is that they have this like profound openness to the future where later readers can, can come in here and be like, oh yes, you know, I need to be saved too. (laughs) You know, whatever this trauma is, this I'm, if you fed them with the bread of tears, right? This language is so full of pathos, right? And given them tears to drink in full measure. I mean, what a, what a gorgeous harrowing image that is. You made them drink triple measure of tears. That's what Alter's got. (laughs) Exactly. It's just, it's yeah, just, this like heartbreaking kind of imagery that doesn't link it to like a specific moment, although it probably came from a specific historical moment. So, well, that's the beauty of the Psalms is they're they're specific enough to be rooted in this both the history culture as well as the kind of covenantal identity mm-hmm. of Israel. Mm-hmm. But then they're also open ended, as I like that language, open enough yeah. to kind of include. And yet if, if they were written just in a totally open way, they actually, it's like, if something's, something's relevant to everyone, it's relevant to no one. You know what I mean? Like, cause it would just be too generic. Poetry doesn't work if it's too generic. It's gotta yeah. have, like you said, the pathos, it's gotta have some specificity behind it. But then, like you said, in a way that's open, mm. you know? So I like, I like the specific and the open more than it's common to get st- stuck in language. Like, particular and universal or something like that. It isn't really about that. It's, it's the, the specifics of my life can connect with the specifics of the text because it's written in an open enough way, as you put it. Yeah. Open. I like that. Hey, let's take a quick break and come back and explore this some more. Okay. Sounds good. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Elaine James, and we're looking at Psalm 80, which is uh, one of the psalms suggested for the 
the fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, very fittingly, especially that refrain that we focused on has a has nice Advent vibes. Um, let me let me go ahead and read it again. I'll use this Robert Alter translation that I enjoy so much just to kind of get it in our ears again for our listeners. And then we'll explore some more interpretive questions and see where it goes. So here goes. Shepherd of Israel, hearken. He who drives Joseph like sheep, enthroned on the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, Rouse your might and come to the rescue for us. O God, bring us back and light up your face that we may be rescued. Lord, God of armies, how long will you smolder against your people's prayer? You fed them bread of tears and made them drink triple measure of tears. You have put us in strife with our neighbors and our enemies mock us. God of armies, bring us back and light up your face that we may be rescued. You carried a vine out of Egypt. You drove away nations and planted it. You cleared space before it and struck its roots down and it filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade and by its branches, the mighty cedars. You sent forth its boughs to the sea and to the river its shoots. Why did you break through its walls so all passerby could pluck it? The boar from the forest has gnawed it, and the swarm of the field fed upon it. God of armies, pray, come back. Look down from the heavens and see, and take note of this vine, and the stock that your right hand has planted and the sun you took to yourself, burned in fire, chopped to bits. From the blast of your presence, they perish. May your hand be over the man at your right hand, over the son of man you took to yourself. And we will not fall back from you. Restore us to life and we shall call on your name. Lord God of armies, bring us back. Light up your face that we may be rescued. All right, Elaine, you could imagine I was going to go here, but the NRSV, I think wisely in in many contexts, chooses here in verse, uh, I guess it was maybe uh, 15, 16, to kind of scrub out the sun and man at your right hand and son of man business. Again, for good reason that, that that kind of exclusive language can be rather distracting for us. However, especially during Advent, I'm like, well, these are clearly were taken, if not written and intended that way, were not too long after taken to be referring to somebody, something, whether it's messianic or not. And I'm sure the lectionaries puts this on the Advent list, not only for the Advent vibes. I don't think there's any debate that there's Advent vibes here, mm-hmm. but that there would actually be a kind of, you know, Adventish kind of character being hinted yeah. at here. I'm guessing in its original setting, this is a kind of singular image to talk about Israel as a person, or is this a royal kind of reference? What, what's going on there? I don't know. What, what's your take on the son you took to yourself, the man at your right hand, the son of man you took to yourself? 
What would be your take on on some of what's going on there at the end of the vine stuff? Yeah, well, the sun language and adoption language is royal language, right? And so kings are said to be, and David in particular is associated with the right hand of God, right? And in fact, I think- And there's that, another tricky thing with the northernness of it, right? Yeah, right, right. So the- um, Has this gotten a southern edit? <laughs> well, this- I mean, yeah, no, that's exactly, that's exactly a good historical critical question, right? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't need to be resolved today, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that the uh, daily office puts this beside Second Samuel 7, right? That text where you get the covenant with David and you get a lot of the similar language, right? David is the shepherd king. Um, yeah. You get the vine that's planted there. They ask the asking for the vine to be, or the promise that they'll be planted in the land. And so I think there is this kind of like gesture. I mean, if you're thinking of it canonically, if you're thinking of it intertextually as interacting with these other biblical texts, there certainly are motifs that point to royal expectation, right? And that's exactly what get, gets taken up in the New Testament text and turned in this kind of messianic direction, right? But what you can say definitively, I mean, what you can't say definitively is manifold, but what you can say definitively is that there is this sense of expectation. I mean, the, the tone of this text is a tone of deep yearning, right? It's asking God to give ear. It's asking God to look, to turn God's face, right? This sense of like deep longing for the presence of God to return is I think what makes this such an apt text uh, opening onto, if we can want to use that verb again, onto the Advent context for Christian readers. It's marked by a sense of actually divine absence, which if you take Advent seriously, is really theologically kind of that the tone of that season. What do we do when we walk in darkness? I mean, that's a that's like a, a serious sort of theological challenge that this text is absolutely immersed in. There's the sense of promises that have been made. I mean, if we think about the like the shining of the face is that's language that we also get in the Aaronic blessing, right? In number six, the desire for the face of God to shine, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So there is this kind of like resonance with the idea of divine beneficence, but it's the absence of it that marks the poem, right? Not the presence of it. It's asking God to do again what God has done before, which is to be present, to let the face be seen. And so I, I guess that's the direction that I would go in terms of thinking about it in connection with Advent is to think about it as a text of yearning. Oh, that's spot on. So I, I don't want to harp on this. I just no, want to no. ask just to tie back into that. So this yearning that's directed towards the Lord God, God of armies. And this reference to the vine then becomes a self-reference, it seems, like to Israel, right? And so then this this character that shows up towards the end of this, this son, at first, when it says the son you took to yourself, the stock your right hand planted, it seems to be in apposition as just another way of describing the vine. Mm-hmm. But Given the way this language gets used elsewhere, you know, mm-hmm. the man at your right hand, the son of man, it sounds royal, right? So you've got the, and maybe this is just another one of those things like the suffering servant Psalms in Isaiah, where it's like, is this a, is this the prophet? Is this a, some kind of single figure? Is this a, 
singular form of the of the people Israel. Maybe yeah. maybe yes, it's all those things that want you know. I mean, there's um, and you may have a take on that. <laughs> Sorry, maybe bringing in Isaiah makes it more messy than it needs to. But you know what I mean? It's kind of this absolutely. So it's um, I would say if you go back to verse nine or in English verse ten, no no verse eight, right? Um, the vine out of Egypt that you, you yeah. Know, brought up. You drove out the nations and you planted it. There's tons of resonance, as you point out, with other biblical texts. There are lots of texts that think about Israel as a vine, right? That say Israel is a vine. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think like Hosea 10, at the beginning of Hosea 10, you get exactly that phrase, Israel is a plentiful vine. (laughs) And so you get other texts that play on this as well. And a chapter later in Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. So there you've got son, not referring, not in, at least if there's any royal imagery there, it's definitely way in the background, right? It's the the son is the, the children of Israel are. Yeah, good. And in, you know, Isaiah five, the famous song of the vineyard, you know, you get lots of places. So the audience is sort of invited to think about Israel here, right? As the vine, but the text is doesn't ever name it. So it stays mm. in, it stays here in the realm of the symbolic, which requires something of us, right? As readers, like we have to then imagine or answer that question. We aren't supplied with the interpretation. So a vine out of Egypt um, you brought up seems like a pretty clear reference, right? So sort of from Egypt, maybe some Exodus event or tradition is in the background here. Um but the fact that it isn't named to me is sort of an interesting dimension of this um, poem as well. Like in Isaiah five, you have a description of not just bringing the vine out of Egypt, but also clearing and tilling the ground. In Hebrew, this verse of of divine action here: you cleared its face, and then it rooted its roots, and it filled up the land. Is really like two lines each. I mean, two words per line, and you get these repeated uh, roots in each of the lines. It's very sort of like tidy and orderly, and you get imperfect verbs. You get the feeling that you're like being told a little story. We have a little, almost a little, a little story interlude in the middle of this psalm, which again, you know, you get psalms that sort of do this and psalms that are that tell little histories but there aren't super common either right the psalms tend to stay more in the register of evoking as opposed to storytelling and again if we think about it as storytelling it's pretty spare as far as storytelling storytelling goes right this is not like uh deborah's song in judges five where you get like a really more or less for a biblical poem elaborate telling of a battle you don't get that here but you get a couple lines where the poet is like giving us a little uh, a little image to play with and because it has this like it stays in the symbolic register it sort of like draws us in to imagine what is this what is this vine right and it does it, it like attracts it has this magnetism it calls to mind all these other texts that use that imagery as well but in the same way as it doesn't na- specifically name Israel it also doesn't name the destruction in a really clear way, right? It just says like Yeah, the boar, the swarm. Yeah. Yeah. So again, like it leaves the historical stuff in the background and lets us dwell in that symbolic register, you know, thinking about the vine as a vine. I mean, it's quite evocative, this image of the of it being torn down here. It is for me anyway. 
they've burned it with fire. They've planted it down the bore from the forest, you know, ravages it maybe. And it leads with this uh, in verse, at the beginning of verse 12, right? Why, why have you broken it down? There's no answer to that really in a clear way. Yeah, none is given in the text. Yeah. We don't get explanations. We just get the cry of communal abjection. Why have you torn it down, right? And the request is simply made to come back, to look down, Mm -hmm. which matches the lighting of the face. uh, 15 or or in English, uh, 14. Mm -hmm. The way that 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 both parallels and then is that parallels the refrain, I think is very striking. Yeah. Out of armies, come back, look down from heavens and see, which would parallel, I think, the lighting, the lighting up of your face, right? A little bit of a Mm -hmm. where where the countenance of God is being directed, what God is regarding, and so therefore choosing and helping. Take note of this vine. There the the vine term returns. Yeah, turn now, shuvna in Hebrew, right? It's just like return now, you know, do it. Ah, there's like a real sense of just look at us, you know, like just, just. It seems like you're ignoring us. Seems like you turned your back and you're doing something else, right? <laughs> well, yeah, which is where, you know, it builds on this sense of divine absence, really, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, and it's an absence that then appeals to a prior active presence, which exactly. I think is always important when we do Advent, especially for Christians sort of appropriating these these Hebrew texts to kind mm-hmm. of picture it's a mistake to then just picture Israel as in a constant state of emptiness and longing, right? Absolutely. <laughs> emptiness and longing is occasioned by the fact that there was yeah. uh, so definitive of a presence and not just a passing moment of Exodus, but a planting, right? Yeah. And spread out. That's why I think it's very helpful for us as modern Christian readers of Psalm 80 to really take our time with, you know, verses eight and following for a while there, that it really slows down and paints a picture of God really mm. setting this vine up well. Yeah. It's why so it's actually a mystery. It's not it's a mystery that that it's suddenly been torn away, you know? And that whatever it is that is to come is a restoration. Mm. Not though it's also a fulfillment of something new, it's also a restoring of something that already exists, a a, a prior covenant to use yeah. that term that doesn't appear in the psalm, obviously, but. Yeah, beautiful. Although, interestingly, it does appear in the title. This is the only psalm, I think, that gets called an edut, which is a word. It's it's sort of covenant language. Isn't that interesting? Oh, man, I know nothing about an edut. I mean, it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a legal term. You get it all over in the, in the legal text. You get it all over Psalm 119. It's one of these. Uh, yeah. Terms, terms for law or covenant. So that's interesting. So then at least the later reader may have, even if that's not original, I mean, that's an open question too, but. Well, the other thing to your question about the son of the right hand, I can't help but think of that it connects somehow to Benjamin, right? Which means son of my right hand. <laughs> when we get Benjamin in the early verses. Oh my heavens. How did I miss that? And um, <laughs> wow. So I don't know what kind of gesture that would be, but it seems like uh, at least a provocative sound play at minimum right Hmm. and would it at the very least if that sound play is intended would confirm that this language of son and man are 
man of right hand is being used primarily to talk about the people as a whole and their need for restoration, right? I mean, or royal. I mean, I'm inclined somewhat to see it as a king, right? We need it. So then it's a subtle like reference back to Saul, the first king who was from Benjamin and not (laughs) from Judah. I mean, mean, like, I think that it's totally possible, right? I mean, the historical critical questions that a psalm like this raises are really (laughs) fun, actually, and on on basically all unanswerable, (laughs) but but really fun questions. (laughs) You know, bring back the you know you could imagine a really ancient earlier form of this psalm could have been built around a like a hey maybe Saul's gonna (laughs) the the line of Saul's coming back or something goofy (laughs) like that, but who knows? I mean, that's all just speculation, but. Wow. Well, thanks so much for, for, for digging in. Let's take one more break and then come back and explore some sermon starters. That sounds great. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Elaine James, and we've been digging into Psalm 80 just with the last couple minutes here that we have. Um, how might we pray, practice, preach this text? You can go any direction you would. And if you want to just offer a general advice about how to preach and teach the Psalms, which are tricky. They're a very different kind of literature than, yeah. um, than what we often make use of in preaching and teaching. But if you have any suggestions for our audience, we'd love to hear them. Yeah, sure. Well, a couple of thoughts come to mind. The first is just taking the medium seriously, right? This is a poem. It's not didactic. And sometimes, especially in sermon and education preparation, people want like, the teaching they can take, right? That sort of right. like that thing that they can take away. And um, poems just don't totally let us live that way, right? There's something beautiful about the aesthetic form of the poem itself that asks us to think in this more. And we drew attention to this throughout, but this to l- let us live in that kind of mysterious world of symbols, right? Where we think in historical and traditional terms. The, po- the poetry of the Bible is pretty traditional. So when you see uh, vine, you're like, oh, I've seen that before. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of like similar images, similar tropes that get reused and recycled. But that's also part of where their power comes from. So I think having the willingness to um, have sort of open hands about the experience of the poem is good. But that doesn't mean I don't think that there isn't aren't worthwhile dimensions that you can call attention to or use for sermons or for teaching. But that basic thing of like, what does it mean to give your congregation space to live with poems? I think that's a worthwhile question to explore because people don't really, I don't think it really registers for people, but like there's way more poetry in the Old Testament than there is prose or law, right? Like that's our principal medium. So what does that say about the way that we approach faith, the way that we approach our theology? But the second thing that I would say is, um, for Advent, you know, this is the season of darkness. Uh, it's the season of darkness for us, like in many ways, um, spiritually and also just physically, right? We're in the, you know, the winter going into our longest nights of the year. And to think about the absence of the sun as a profound metaphor for what it means to be human, particularly humans who experience abjection and suffering and the sense of the alienation from God. And the poem's like yearning, it's crying out for God. 
participates in that in a profound way. And yet there is also the fact that the poem exists, right? Suggests to us that it is language before God, right? The prayer is spoken in the expectation that God will hear, that God will turn God's face, that God will shine again. And so there is, despite the fact that the poem lives in that space of, you know, that space of the absence of the deity, it also turns on the expectation of the deity's presence, which I think is, you know, quite beautiful. Just like every winter, we we know the sun is coming back, but we still want it to come like the long heat is still triggered. And if you have any seasonal depression tendency, I mean, you, you knowing that winter comes to an end doesn't make the feeling go away, right? It's like, yeah, exactly. You still have to live through that, the season of darkness. Yeah. Yeah. And for Christian readers, and you pointed this out so nicely, but I, uh, I would always underscore this, especially for preachers is right to remember the deep history of the text as Jewish texts first before they come to us as Christians. And so reading with that in mind, I think is, uh, is, is so necessary. And so be cognizant of that in, in preparing to think about how to talk about texts like this publicly. Well, thanks so much, Elaine, for the time you gave. And it was great talking to you today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, thanks as always to all our listeners, uh, as well as to our uh, producer team, uh, Todd and Eric. Can't imagine doing this show without you guys. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks especially to our uh, patron saints, uh, the supporters of the show. If you want to support the show and find a way to uh, support us in different ways and maybe get some extra content that way, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. That's patreon.com slash fresh text. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And as always, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>